This is an ABC podcast. How best of week continues. And today, it's my conversation with Kelvin Kong. Professor Kelvin Kong is a Waramai man from New South Wales. Kelvin is also an ear, nose and throat surgeon. And he's the third doctor in his family. He followed his twin sisters into medical school. Kelvin and his sisters were inspired and driven by two other women, his mum and his nan, who gave him relentless, non-stop love and encouragement and who stopped him from being distracted when he thought he might take up rugby instead. And thank God for that. (laughs) Kelvin's mum was a nurse. And as a kid, he helped his mum treat people in the community who were wary of going into a hospital. And now as an ENT surgeon... Kelvin performs highly intricate, life-saving procedures, some of them on newborn babies and on babies that are not quite born, and more on that later. Kelvin also does community outreach work in northern Australia, helping Indigenous kids who suffer from untreated ear disease. And this is a medical intervention that can change the entire trajectory of these kids' lives. Hello, Kelvin. Welcome to you, sir. Thank you so much for having me. How beautiful is the ear to you? Oh, it's the most beautiful organ and it's so pretty in its its way you look at it, the way you operate on it when you see it, and more importantly, how it functions. And people forget how important it is. We're very lucky and those who are listening or hearing impaired probably appreciate it more so than us who take it for granted. Such a small device that can bring you a world of joy and happiness. And often when we talk about in the medical context, we're talking about it from a disease perspective. But in reality, what we're talking about is enjoying bird singing, the leaves rustling, rain on the tin roof, um, music, kids talking, dancing, fun. And, you know, it just brings an immediate smile to my face when you know that that interpretation of what we hear is sound and that sound is so important to life. So I'm sitting across from you at the moment and as I blather away and the noise comes out of my mouth, what happens to that sound wave when it reaches your ear? What's the process of it coming into your ear and getting into your brain? Well, even right from the out part, the outside ear has a function in actually making sure the shape of the sound wave goes into it in the appropriate manner. And so one of the first operations I often try and talk my patients out of is pinning ears back or otoplasty because it changes the shape and all the kids come back and say, I hear differently and they don't like it a lot of the time and I wonder whether whoever made us made us in the way it actually shaped that. So sound wave travels into the ear canal and it hits the eardrum. The eardrum is about one centimetre squared and it vibrates very, very fine vibrations, which moves three little bones. And those ear bones are called ossicles. And it jumps up and down on the little cochlear water, which then actually moves hair cells. Now, hair cells in this cochlea, if you can try and picture the coral reef, and the coral at the bottom of the ocean just moves back and forth. And so this sound wave's actually moving these hair cells. Now, we have just under 24,000 hair cells in our cochlea. Such a small organ, about the size of your little fingernail, that can move all this sound and it's actually uh, typed in different patterns. So you've got Barry White areas and you've got Mariah Carey areas. So you've got the high pitch and low pitch. And so when it moves, this sound wave is just going breezing across back and forth. It's so majestic and it sends a sound up in the brain. And then, you, of course, your brain interprets the sound in a different way. So you interpreting sound is very different to the way I interpret sound. And when I talk about this to my students, you talk about different areas we go to. When I take my kids shopping at a big department store, you might listen to the girl from Ipanema. 
that encourages that demographic to pull their wallets out and spend. Ah, yes. When you go to a shoe shop, you listen to all this funky hip hop, which then encourages the young ones to say, let's buy these shoes. And so it really has a real impact on us. And we know how it does that. And we use it in marketing all the time. So it's a beautiful thing to sound and the ears are so wonderful to see. Kevin, the way you were describing the scientific process of how sound travels into the ear canal, hits the drum, makes it vibrate and operates these three little bones that then operate in some cochlear fluid, I think you said, mm. and then um, makes uh, some little hair cells to... That's the science of it, but it sounds kind of mad, doesn't it? It sounds like magic almost. It, it sounds is like a, tiny. A, yeah. It is tiny as yeah. well. And that's what's so beautiful about it. Like the creator of us has just made this most magnificent organ, which gives us so much joy and so much pleasure. It's so sophisticated, but sounds so like a a kind of a harebrained contraption in a way at the same time. But yet, all this rich auditory, sensory uh, information can be reached and interpreted by us getting this and coming to our heads like that. Absolutely. And we haven't gone into the brain how the brain processes that yet. Yeah. It's so different in there, but such an important organ for us. And I come back to the important part of that is engaging in life and being part of life. And do you does, does your work sort of engage with the neurology of that as well? Uh, or do you sort of stop at that point where the brain starts to pick up these signals? And there are different parts of those areas in ENT that we do. Some parts that we do look at the acoustic nerve and going further into brainstem implants. Um, but generally we're sticking toward the ear. So with that, tell me about this special procedure I sort of hinted at in the introduction to you there, the special exit procedure you sometimes perform that only you and a few other surgeons can do on babies that are about to be born. What kind of babies are we, infants or, or uh, fetuses are we talking about? Yeah, sure. Case? We're very lucky and where I'll get into it, this is how lucky we are in our Australian healthcare system. We have an amazing healthcare system that I really strongly support. One of the beautiful things about it is that we're doing world-class operations within our centres in Australia and people forget how well it is, how well all the machinery is here. One of those procedures is an exit procedure, which is a procedure which allows us to intervene with babies before they're born so that we can actually save things or just save disasters. What I mean by disaster is sometimes kids are born or might have a malformation in the mouth or a malformation in the neck, and therefore when they're born, the mass or the obstruction can actually obstruct them. And what, so, what kind of malformation are we talking about, oh, like, like a, a tumour or a cyst? Or a tumour or right. a growth or a malformation or a vascular malformation. Or in, in the mouth or the throat? Of mouth the, or the neck right. or the throat, which compresses that whole area. And so when they're born, people don't realise it, and so they're born and obviously you can't get an airway or can't intubate them because of the mass that's there, and so therefore the baby passes away. So you need to be able to, to detect the presence of this malformation before the baby is born. Is this a routine thing that's done? Yeah, so this is where we screen for babies. So now at utero you actually have ultrasounds early in your pregnancy to make sure there's no malformations. And then if there are anything picked up, and in our case obviously ENT world it's the mouth and head and neck area, then the further imaging can be done, a more high-resolution ultrasound, which then moves to an MRI scan. Now we can scan an MRI scan in, a, in utero, which is very safe. And this is what, at the six-month? Uh, Around the 20-week mark. 20-week mark, right. And see exactly what's going on there. So, so you've got time to plan then, have so you? So at 20 weeks then we all get together and there's a massive team that gets together and we say, hang on, something's going on here, we need to try and figure this out. And so with that multidisciplinary team, we start planning, having regular meetings about what we're expecting, what we think it is, is there anything else going on, is it compatible with life, is this the only lesion, how are we going to do this? And do you talk to the mother and, and, and the father as well oh, about this? They're very involved in this, they have right. to be involved in this because obviously very, yes. very uh, high risk procedures from that point of view. And so the longer the shorter you can get to the down to the operation part of it is that when you deliver a baby, you don't have any time. So how can we prolong that to make sure we get time? Now, we 
we know that when delivery starts, you start shedding your placenta, which is a lifeline for the baby. And so what we're trying to do is keep the placenta intact, make sure the blood flow is still going, and then we can run all the anaesthetic through the mum and therefore the baby's anaesthetised as well. In the childbirth process? In the childbirth process. So at this stage where you do an exit is where you actually, over the years, have developed the technique where you can actually deliver just the head of the baby and one shoulder and that makes sure that the uterus stays intact, that the placenta stays intact, and that buys us about 60 minutes to do what we need to do to so, fix the lesion. This is mind-blowing. You're, you're talking about performing an operation on the baby as it's being born, not immediately afterwards, Correct. but as it's being born. You so have to anaesthetise the baby to do any kind of operation. And, and the so mum presumably to, too as well. And uh, the mum as well. And so you yeah. can't run the anaesthetic through the baby because you've got no lines, they're all slimy, you can't find veins, and obviously you don't have an airway, so everything has to be run through the mum. And so when you go into the operating theatre in this procedure, it's like the end of a boxing match. There are 20, 30 people in the room and there's everyone specifically designed for their purpose. You have someone looking after the mum's anaesthetic, you have someone looking after the uh, caesarean, you have someone looking after ENT, you have someone looking after the baby, the baby anaesthetic, the intensive care. It is a minefield in there. So so, so you say that the, the optimal moment for this medical intervention, the surgical intervention on the baby is just when the head and an arm or the arms uh, are out from, what, a C-section are we talking yeah. about here? So if you perform a C-section and the baby's delivered, then the placenta is shared and the baby's born and everything's happy. Now, that doesn't buy you time to do the operation you need to do for whatever it is around the neck. So whether you're fighting an airway, whether you're doing tracheostomy, whether you're defining the lesion. So you've got, this allows us to buy us 60 minutes to get around that time problem. That 60 minutes? 60 minutes, about 60 minutes to run the anaesthetic, to run that through. After 60 minutes the placenta will shed and the baby has to be delivered. So the clock's ticking? Ticking. Straight away? Oh, it's so, fun. The so, villain's really going. There's a lot of excitement in the theatre. So take me through what happens in that moment when the, the C-section is performed. Well, before even the C-section is performed, we have, as people know in the medical world, you have a thing called a timeout, so you actually find out what the procedure is. This timeout is like no other. Everyone has every designated space in the room. It's very small in the theatres when you've got so many people in there, so everyone's got to keep to their space. Everyone knows exactly what to do, and if it doesn't happen, you've got plan A, B, C and D in case something goes wrong. If the A happens, we're going to move to this plan. If B happens, going to have this plan. And you talk this through, and in fact, we run sim labs to make sure that we're actually running the right procedure and running in the right manner, and everyone knows their spot. And so everyone knowing their spot is really important in the team to make sure that you talk communicate and really get strong together. And how apprehensive are you on that morning when you're going in? Because you know today's the day. My wife thinks I'm mad because on, <laughs> on the days that those happen, you just have this big smile on your face and I'm up at five o'clock really? excited by that. Really? Oh, it is incredible in that, you know, here I am as a person being involved in something which, you know, you dream about in sci-fi kind of novels that you can actually be a part of and help and be useful in this world. That is a real buzz. And obviously there's, there's high stakes in this, but when the baby's delivered and everything's a good outcome, oh, wow, what a feeling. So, so when the C-section is performed and the baby's head is, is, is brought out, and what do you then have to step in at this point as the ENT surgeon and move steadily and with, you know, all due intent, but not too quickly, but not too slowly either? I Absolutely, and there's all different plans for that. So if we can establish an airway 
when the baby's head's out, then we intubate the baby and then we can deliver the baby. But then the baby's got to be transferred to another table to make sure that we can continue making sure they're resuscitated or they're alive or they've got access or they're looked after or they're warmed, all those kind of things you look at. And, and removing the obstruction, is that is that often just a, a matter of entering this tiny little newborn baby's mouth or do you have to make an incision or well, what? the goal of the procedure is to prevent catastrophes happening. So all we're trying to do is deliver this baby safe and alive. The lesion often is dealt with at a later stage, not early on. Oh, I see. So you just got to intubate the baby. That's the main thing. Find the airway, right. make sure the baby's alive, make sure the baby's safe, and then we can work about what we're going to do. In the last scenario, it was a cyst in the mouth, so we're able to move that at the same time. It was quite straightforward. But at that time, there might be a larger um, malformation that will need to be treated over multiple months. What can go wrong in this process, Kelvin? Oh, lots can go wrong. The baby might make it through. The mum might not make it through. Bleeding, a whole lot of things. And obviously you plan and talk about those kind of catastrophic events as well. And I think for me the hardest part is not so much in the room because there's so much drilling going on you don't realise as the conversation prior to going on. So the mother's under a general anaesthetic and so she's going to sleep not knowing the outcome. That's a big deal when you've been carrying someone for nine months. And what's it like to be able to give the mum the good news once she comes out of that? Oh, super exciting. Um, not always uh, me, myself, but, you know, the team and the, mainly probably the obstetrician who's involved in her care that's been looking after. That's a huge buzz, but it's a huge buzz for the team. But I think for us it's a huge buzz for Australia and how good we are in our healthcare system and how good our training is in all these different facets that we can actually do this kind of world-first kind of interventions at a local level, this is not even in your big urban centres. You know, I live in beautiful Wobbegal country and, you know, we've done quite a few in Newcastle. And, you know, to be able to do that and be able to share that and be part of that process is really special. And do you get to meet the kids after some years once they're little kids pinging around the joint? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Um, the one I'm thinking of, I have met and uh, doing really well and it's lovely thinking. And uh, I think back and the first thing I said is, do you realise how many years you put on your parents? It's going through <laughs> this itself, which is quite good. But also it's very, the, the funny thing which I share with you in that, in that one I was thinking about is that we prepare for this ready to go. So at 20 weeks we know the diagnosis. And then so we plan to deliver at a time that the obstetricians and the and the maternal fetal circulation people know that's the right time. And so normally it's around 36 weeks, 37 weeks. And, of course, we were going to do it a sim lab at 34 weeks and just make sure we knew all our spaces were in there. But, of course, the baby doesn't listen to what we're doing in our procedure times. And I get a phone call on the... Uh, I think it was on the weekend. I was at the, I was at the beach Then my wife answered the phone. Uh, Kelvin, there's someone in emergency with a baby here, having a baby. Why are they calling you? <laughs> because they're being smiling face. Oh, no, this is that baby. And they're bolting in there from that point of view. So you're running so in your shorts and your T-shirt? Running in and right. you're going there. And, and obviously it's, uh, you know, it's all systems game, but we missed out on that sim part for that, for that particular delivery. But they're the kind of things that you're thinking about all the time and how you're planning and it doesn't always go to plan. So sometimes in those kind of days where it's not the actual team that we're actually on call that we've been talking to, you might have someone subbing in here and there when there's so many people in that room. And so, again, you've got to quickly go through all that debriefing process to make sure everyone knows what their job is and where they're meant to be. After the drama of all that, operation completed successfully, bloody hell, do you need to lie down in a cup of tea after that, after all that drama? I need to come down because you have a beaming smile on your face for probably three or four days afterwards and obviously now still talking about it years after the event. You know, that's, that's the impact it has on all of us that have been involved in that. And I think that's a real reward in, in what we can do and I think it's fabulous. Oh, yeah. 
you'd stay with the buzz of that, I think, for months and months, wouldn't you? And the and the reward of that is something you, you're like we're both smiling mm. idiotically at the moment. <laughs> you and I. It's such a, such a lovely story that you can live off that for the rest of your life in Absolutely. some ways. That's lovely. You're uh, what am I, man? Absolutely. Where is Warramai country in New South Wales? Warramai country is north of um, New South Wales in beautiful Port Stephens and it's one of the most beautiful places that you could uh, be in. And I think one of the positives out of COVID is how much time I've been able to spend back on country. Obviously, my world, you're all over the place and jetting and going places and operating. You forget about why we're here and you forget about the kind of things we're doing. And so one of the beautiful things about the COVID period is being able to spend a lot of time on country with my kids and enjoying that a lot. We often think about destinations and, and aspects of destinations, but in actual fact, half of that cultural component for us is just being able to sit down and yarn and have a cup of tea with the aunties and uncles and, and reminisce and chat and the future and where we've been and what's happened and where our family's been. And um, I learn every time I chat. Uh, I'm ever so um, lucky and I, I embrace how privileged I am in, in what I have when I hear all the stories of what they went through. How has that country changed since you were a kid? Not too much, thankfully. There's obviously been quite a lot of development there, but um, a lot of national parks are there still, so it's still there. And so we're quite lucky to be able to get back on there and have a good sticky beak and walk around. So you know that area like the back of your hand still do? Oh, when we were young, we used to roam that bush quite a lot and it was fun. You know, you go for a walk and go see stuff and even along the coastline in there, there's a lot of uh, astronomy markings on the rocks there, which we've found, which have probably dated about 5,000 years just seeing the different areas, some of the um, uh, ceremonial areas that we, we know of, but also just being a part of um, enjoying the coastline and seeing the whales and the flowering and the different bushes and the animals, the, the wildlife. It's, it's all part of, you know, just being part of that. But more importantly, again, I say is walking with my kids and talking about what I was doing when I was running amok as a kid and surfing and yahooing and, you know, how restricted they are compared to what we were because when I was their age, there wasn't an adult in sight, you know, whereas now you watch him like a hawk all the time. How about your mum? How different was it for her growing up in that area? I come back to my privilege because of what she went through and her mum went through. My mum's passed and we miss her a lot and I was reflecting on a lot of her time um, over that area and I think back to when she was a little girl and, um, you know, she picturing her, a skinny little girl, big brown eyes, brown skin, happy little girl, big dimples, but born into a world which is very different to the world that I'm born into. When she was born, she was not a citizen of her own country. When she grew up, there were so many things that were put against her which denied her many opportunities, education included, um, life opportunities, discrimination in getting into university and and job applications. Simple things we think about that we don't realise are going to the uh, movies None of the uh, Cory kids were allowed in until it went dark. And then when it went dark, they were allowed in the rope top section up the front. So my aunties and uncles sit there and talk about it and they laugh about, you know, who had the sorest neck and how much fun they had doing it. And I sit there, look at them and go, wow, you were held back and you had to do snuck-ins and I wanted to see Aboriginals were going in the movies. Or going to the pools, you know. They weren't allowed in pools because I was segregated. But, you know, my family go, oh, they, we didn't miss out on that because we went to the beach and they, they're the silly ones because they're getting all the ear infections from swimming in the pools. But the fact that we were not allowed in the uh, the pools. And so this life that she grew up in was far different. Her house was a true tin shed. There was no windows. There were hessian bags for windows. They had mattresses on the floor when it rained because they shared mattresses. They'd have to run home to make sure the mattress was lifted up so they didn't have to sleep on a wet mattress. But she grew up in a family of 12 and so it was quite busy. 
and she was the eldest of those 12, so she was probably kind of the person looked after the little ones as well. And so when she went through that kind of system, everything was against her and what she was doing. So for her to even do nursing, to get into nursing took her multiple applications and a lot of pushing from the local community to actually get her through to, to get the application in. And when she get into there, she realised how important that was. You know, her, her, her mother grew up in a world where none of that ever existed. When she, my nan was a young girl, she had my mum as a teenager. My mother had an accident, fell into a fire and had to go to uh, Newcastle for a hospital for her burns. When she came down, her mother passed and word got to her, don't come home. And the answer was don't come home because the police were coming to separate all the family. So where did they go? They stayed in Nelson Bay, more in my country. They were further up the coast. So they were hiding out there? So they were truly hiding. And what was sad about that is my nan didn't see any of her siblings, so she's from a family of eight, for 40 years, four zero. So she grew up as a teenager with my grandfather, with my mum as her only child then, truly off the grid in Soldiers Point in Warramai country. And they were always in fear of their little dream of having their own family and their Gracie being taken away from them. Did they feel protected by their country? I've had Aboriginal people on the program or mm. Indigenous people say that one of the obvious things about living on country is this feeling of protection you have from the country itself. Did that offer them feelings of protection, I wonder? Yes and no. I think back at how they lived in that kind of environment, it must have been that horrible, and I talk about, if I can talk in a medical sense, how we're always living in an anxiety or a, a, an element of stress, which means all your cortisol and everything's always running around. So this is what leads to a lot of the chronic illnesses. But Fight always, or flight instinct, constantly triggered. Always yeah, thinking yeah. that around the corner, yeah. someone's going to take my daughter away. Or around the corner, I can't do that. And, you know, my dad worked for pittance um, and my nan didn't have a job. She raised all the kids in that area. So relying on a lot of local uh, knowledge on food but also the local community, which were very supportive, I have to say that because it's quite important that they were supportive as well. But just living in that environment where, you know, nan just wanted to have a kid and a family and she was taken away from her family. And so her dream was to have a family that she held on to and she succeeded, you know, 12 kids and all of them are all in around that area. All of them have kids who are all my age and we've all got kids now. So her dream lasted, her legacy lasted in the sense that we kept us all together. We weren't stolen generation, thankfully, and love to all those stolen generation out there. We managed to stay together. And although we didn't have material possessions, what we had was love and a, an unforged bond that, you know, we still have to this day in, in that importance. And I think for us, say, you go from my, from my nan to my mum to my sisters, in three generations, from illiterate to nursing to two female doctors, that's huge. Like and that's... to you, you're Australia's first Aboriginal surgeon. I oh, mean, that's a big deal. If I, know I you deflect don't... to them for a moment, yeah. you know, the matriarchal set up in our family and, and that power of how important that is and the strength of all that means that, you know, when you talk about in what you just said there, you know, the, the highlight of being an Aboriginal surgeon or, you know, that you're a firstness, we should be embarrassed that it's I'm alive and I'm the first. The first should be well gone centuries ago. And so to turn our family history around, and I'm just living our little ecosphere here, for my nan to do that is just so powerful, for my mum to believe that is so powerful. And again, I've, I say it very cheekily, I just kind of dovetail behind my sisters and follow, follow them in the right well, direction. Well, there's someone there who's had an iron will and, and the iron will has also had a word on 
on her lips, which was education. Was that your mum or your nan or both of them? Well, it's hard because I didn't have these deep conversations with my nan because she passed away much earlier, but certainly from my mum's point of view, education was one of those things. But my mum was one of these people that had the knack of giving you an upbeat sense of power in any kind of adversity. And how would she do that? A good example, so when I mentioned about rugby, you know, I I really love rugby and a big shout-out to the Ramwick Rugby Boys. (laughs) But um, when I played rugby in early university, I I seriously thought about taking time off university to concentrate on rugby. Now, in those days, I I thought I was okay, but in retrospect, I was probably just one of the rest of the other guys. But, you know, the camaraderie, that was great. But the reason I stopped playing was because my nan and my mum both pulled me up and said, football comes and goes... There are bigger things for you to do, but more importantly, you're being given an opportunity that we never had. Don't waste that opportunity because that's so, so important in education. And I remember this so distinctly because I cried. I was so upset that I actually thought that I was doing really well and a little bit of a footy kind of hero when in actual fact they saw the big picture. These are two women. My nan wasn't, couldn't read or write. So for her to say that to me was extremely powerful. But my nan pulled me up and said, you know, you're special you're not like the others, you're going to do something. Pause that for a second. My cousin comes down for a uh, uh, hangout for me when he's in the mining sector and he came for, the, for a weekend in Sydney. Can't go, we're going out, I haven't seen you for just go and have a drink and a beer in it. I can't. I've got to study. I've been, I had a talk to that mum. Mum told me, you know, blah, 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 I just told you. Nah, she didn't give you that talk, did she? What's he mean? That she sat down with him. And he's very gifted. He's a, he's a mechan- uh, mechanical engineer. There's something about you with your hands and there's something about your machines. Your mum said that to him, didn't you? You've been gifted this gift. Don't waste that gift. You need to get that apprenticeship in the mines, <laughs> get your occupation. And right. he goes, and you're not going to believe this. And i got my other cousin who's in childcare, said the same thing to her. Look, you've got some kind of passion with kids. I've never seen it before. And so my mum would actually individually go around to all of her nephews and nieces and all of us and tell us how wonderful we were individually, all of us thinking how important we were. When actual fact, she was just beefing us up to actually get on with our lives and make something of our lives. And I thought that was a really unique power. That's fantastic. And so you went from being a guy who might have ended up with bashed up ears <laughs> as a rugby player to being a guy who repairs ears, which is a wonderful thing. Absolutely. But, yeah, the, the fact that out of... Out of at a service, you know, a lot of the cousins came out and said, oh, that's funny. And then they all, they all, they all got the speech. And we didn't even know that she'd done that speech. It was <laughs> wonderful. Broadcast. Podcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. We were just talking about your your lovely mum and how encouraging she was of you and everyone else, it turns out, you (laughs) discovered at her funeral that had been brilliantly encouraging of everyone else. She was a nurse. Tell me a bit how people in the community would come to your house when you were a kid to be treated by her rather than walk into a hospital and why they didn't feel comfortable about walking into a hospital. I think there are different reflections on that as I'm growing up because when you're young, it was always a buzz of activity and how much fun it was when people came to our house. 
whether it be for stitches to be removed or medical advice or immunisations. It was really nice because when the families came, there was lots of cup of teas and the kids would just run around and run amok and kick the foot around. So it was a lot of a buzz of activity. And we love that aspect of it. And it wasn't until you start getting to high school that you start having this kind of mature reflection about, well, hang on, why they come to the house all the time? And maybe as a teenager getting a bit selfish with time, they think, go to the hospital, go to your local doctor. None of my non-Indigenous friends would come around to her place for advice. And she is a nurse and I love nurses. I'm not saying that disrespectfully, but there are so many other um, opportunities out there. And when you start thinking about that aspect of it, you start realising that there's this real disparity between healthcare in our country, between our Koori mob and the rest of Australia. And that disparity is a combination of fear. It's a combination of uh, lack of understanding, but it's also a combination of the unconscious bias that our health systems and our systems in place don't actually cater for Koori people. And I think the last part of that would be then it's a combination of the experiences and the atrocities that we experienced growing up, particularly my nan and her family and also my mum growing up. And so for us, authority was always something that was feared because your kids would be taken away or feared because you weren't taken seriously or feared because of the way you're treated. So therefore you start thinking, well, why is this like that? And that's the, the kind of passion that my sisters and I had in wanting to give back and, and be in the healthcare system that we can actually, one, help people, but more importantly, how do we change the way in which we think about the health system, but also how does the health system change to actually cater for us? You have to remember that you know my mentors who trained me were junior doctors in a time when Aboriginal people were admitted that they would call welfare to say the children are in, come and get the kids. But people think about that in yesteryear. Can I take you back in the dark ages when I experienced it last year? You know, in the COVID times, we had quite a lot of beefed up security around getting into hospitals because of COVID and the obviously ramifications of that. When I walked into the front of the hospital, my own hospital, in my own district, where I don't think I'm not well known, I'm not trying to say that people should know me, that I was told by the people, this is not where you take the deliveries, you've got to go around the back. I was going in for an airway procedure, an emergency case on a kid. They've called me in for an emergency and I'm being harassed by front security about going around the back because you're the loading dock that's around the back. Professor Kelvin Kong is being sent to... (laughs) And I was so frustrated. I actually tweeted something on there and I was like, is this really happening in in today's world? And, And this is a hard part because you can't go crazy at the person that did that. I blame the systems and the structures in which we're training and educating our staff and also us socially in making sure that we are understanding. So we do do that. It shouldn't be a matter of going out of your road to say hello. Everyone that walks to you in life, in the supermarket, in the front of the hospital should be treated the same way and that is with respect and dignity. And that's all I ask in that kind of aspect. And so how do we actually then change the structures and make that realise? So from the subtle things like that right through the the kind of experience, of course mob aren't going to go there. And I can prove that to you. When I started back at the hospital, we ran an Aboriginal clinic in the hospital. We had a 50% do not attend rate, or they call it DNA rate. Now the DNA rate is one of the KPIs that the hospital uses to say, well, is this clinic really worth what we're doing it for? By saying it's a do not attend rate, we're blaming 
the person. We're not blaming the hospital. Blaming the patients. Correct. Yeah. So let's blame the mob again for them not showing up here. So I flipped around and said, well, let's think about it differently. Are we that bad that we're not doing it right? So I moved my clinic. So same resources, same hours, same people from the hospital to our local Aboriginal medical service, less than five kilometres away. The attendance rate, 120%. So it's not about public transport. It's not about getting there. It's not about the wait times up there. It was purely about there's something about the hospital and the structures and the way they're treated that made people run away to put it in a culturally safe spot to make it wonderful. One is obviously the decor to make sure it's a bit more sensitive, but it's that greeting at the desk. It's that sense of feeling belong. It's about not being judged by someone. Another good example of a, a patient that was an emergency and a mum who, single mum, couple of kids, and I was on my way home, so I went through CAS when I was a registrar and saw her in there and she finished work, had the kids in jammies, had them fed, got up there because she knew it was a couple of hours away, but they had ear trolls, couldn't see a GP, couldn't get access there. Went to the front desk. The front desk were talking about the weekend, giggling and laughing. And when I went and saw her, I said, oh, they're talking about me over there. Every time we're going somewhere, you're thinking, they're judging me or they look at me in this funny way. I'm being told not to do that. I'm being followed down the supermarket shelves. Why am I here when it's not an emergency? can't be an emergency. You had time to have dinner and feed the kids and get in their jams and get up here and be prepared to wait for a couple of hours. It has that whole ethos. And I agree in that sense. From a hospital perspective, it's not an emergency. You don't have to be there. But a health symptom is so bad in its access that that's the only access point you're going to get. This seems to be like the real basic business of the closing the gap targets we've been setting ourselves as a nation. This seems to be the kind of thing that ought to be really at the base of so many of the issues that then emerge that create the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia. What, what do you think about that, Kevin? The problem I have in certainly trying to address these is that we are very linear in our thought process and like anything else that we do, we need to be very broad and we need to be thinking about the multiple structures that we need to change. Holistic, yeah. And they're not going to change overnight. Part of that then is how do we train the workforce? Now, the workforce for me is the College of Surgeons, that's the Australian ENT Society, it's a nursing fraternity. And so there's a lot of work going on at the moment that we're pushing, particularly the College of Surgeons, and I'm immensely thankful for the support that the College of Surgeons and, the, and also the uh, Society of ENT Surgeons have given for the work we're doing in making sure we have a workforce which is diverse, that is culturally aware. And in fact, the College of Surgeons are going so far to say that, you know what, we're going to make this a competency. So before you're allowed to do your exams for becoming a surgeon in Australia now, you have to be culturally competent as one of your tick boxes, as well as do your operating, as well as do your medical expertise, as well as doing all the other things. Culture competency is now on there. Now, that's a huge deal for the College of Surgeons. But that's a small step in making sure the workforce I can help with is doing the right bit. Now, we're going to multiply that through every part of the hospital in all the kind of facets. We need to then make sure that the hospital is set up in the right manner. We need to then be appreciate what's going on and why people are afraid of these kind of things. And so that we get to that stage where um, there's lots of Aboriginal faces in the hospital, there's a lot more uh, relaxed environment, and that the outcomes are actually real outcomes, not this KPI of an operating wait list mm -hmm. or seeing X amount of patients. about, you know what, our community is healthy and so if our community is healthy, we're doing the right job. So when you look at the OECD health status where Australia sits at number three or four at the moment and how good are we on health, why is it then in the same community we're number two or three down the bottom in Aboriginal health outcomes? Despite the same hospital, 
despite the same staff, despite the same infrastructure. And that's the challenge for us because there's a whole range of things. It's not one thing or other. It's understanding the disease process, but it's also understanding the systems and the structures in which we work in that create that. Another big sort of slightly intimidating institution that people go to are universities. What was it like for you going to uni as this kid from the country up in uh, New South Wales to go walk through the door into uni? Did, was it easy for you or not so easy for you? You, um, had, you had sisters ahead of you, though, that might have helped. It was good and bad. So my sisters went to Sydney University. They were the first medical, Aboriginal medical graduates from Sydney University and I went to university in New South Wales. And so we have that uh, rivalry and banter in our household, right, which is right. always fun, about which one's a TAFE and which one's a university. That's right, it just can't. <laughs> That's never going to end. It's going to be never with you for ends. the rest of your lives. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that banter aside, um, you know, that was, was a mixed picture for me because at that university there were some pretty impressive people at university in my cohort and, and ahead of me. Um, that part of it made my life there quite passionate and strong. But in the medical world... We're so far and few. When I first went there, I was the only Aboriginal medical student and that changed halfway through. And we did a big program to try and, you know, rustle that up and get that awareness in there and improve that with a pre-medical program. And that's helped a lot. But again, the same thing happens where you're suddenly the Aboriginal health expert. When I wasn't an Aboriginal health expert at medical school, I was still learning medicine. Yet any Aboriginal question you'll turn to. And some of that, again, the subtle kind of things you got of every time Aboriginal health come up, they'd all look at you. Or the Aboriginal health that was taught was about poor eating, smokers, unemployed. There was that really negative discourse associated rather than our warriors, our heroes, um, our academics that are doing amazing. And, and so I think we have a, a long journey in trying to change that narrative to put the importance of how there are so many amazing Aboriginal people who've been through universities, but how do we actually, again, create that environment? And the way we create that environment is by really changing the structures in place there and the power base, because without that power base, you're not going to have those kind of real conversations. Tell me about your graduation ceremony once you finished your degree. Oh, that was fun. Those who have been to university um, know that it's, it's a very tight run ship and so you're only allowed two tickets, two tickets only. And so, of course, graduating from university with my family. And again, I think it's a real testament to how much pride my family have in all of our achievements together because it wasn't anything about my achievement. It was about, you know what, we got him through, so we're all coming as a whole busload come down. No, you can't so, do So that. you mean literally a busload? A busload. I said, you can't do that. It's only two. I don't care. <laughs> and, you know, gracefully uh, they were catered for and then managed to get in there. But just that whole notion of, you know, everyone's so used to this process. I don't care about that process. I'm one good outfit. I'm bringing it down there. We're going to this graduation. So many people, how many members of the, of the community were there oh, when no, you... It was not, not huge. It was probably about 20 of us that came Oh, down not huge. There. That's pretty huge. <laughs> 20 well, people. You, yeah. So was there a cheer that went up? Once, once... It was certainly a cheer. And oh, that's lovely. Excitement and fun and a real, <laughs> a real uh, a kick for the community because I think mm. it's a pride for them. You know, they had a lot of men set foot in the university, um, so it was a novel process for them. But I really truly say that they helped in every aspect of that. They pushed me. They pulled me away from rugby. They pulled me into line. When the Stuvac was on, Arnie used to fight over who was who was feeding me and who was I staying and all those kind of small things that you take for granted and the belief in it and when you got off rails or you had some down times and all the down hard times, you know, there was a, a period in uni there where I was living in the car because there's no accommodation and hard things like that. And it was only for a term. I said, there's no point even trying to get it. One, because when you apply and, you know, Aboriginal's on there, then you're never going to get a place. But two, being such short term was so expensive that I didn't mind at all. 
So you lived in the car for how long? I was only about four weeks or so. It wasn't too long. I haven't told many people, so probably a lot of people know that now. But the small part of that is that even in those times, aunties and that new, but they would say, you know, well, park where it's safe. Um, there's food here. Come and get some food. So you got some. Here's some money to look after those. And they say those kind of small things that I will never forget because without that kind of encouragement and support and knowing that that's a small term at the time for the gains you have now is really important for a young person. So having graduated, you started work at St Vincent's Hospital. Tell me about one of the first Aboriginal patients that you were able to treat there. Yeah, so another important moment in my life because it really honed in on the, the importance of the struggle that we have as Aboriginal Australia and that is that I was working in an emergency there and I saw an elder um, sitting there. So I had finished but I picked up the chart and, and brought her in and had a good yarn to her because I was quite excited as a first year out of university being able to treat my first elder. And uh, we sat down, had a really good yarn, talked about her family, talked about my family, examined her and normally, you know, in this particular emergency department, you're going pretty quickly, but I probably spent about 30, 40 minutes with her just chatting and doing it all right. And then she just started weeping and then became quite loud crying and just intractable. And I was like, oh, no, what have I done wrong? I've mucked this up. I've hurt her somewhere. I've done something. And I wasn't thinking about her at the time. I was thinking, my nan's going to clip me in the back of my head here, <laughs> mucking this up. And then when she came around and was apologetic to me, she said, you know, I'm just so glad I came here today. I never thought I'd live the day to be treated by an Aboriginal doctor. And it really hit home to me and I, and I probably had a big uh, frog in my throat at the time because it was nothing about me. She knew nothing about me until that day. It was about this professional barrier that she suddenly saw, maybe we're going to turn the tide in this country and get this right, where you're going to see something that's normal. And if I, if I fast forward to my kids now, where they think all my Aboriginal friends are doctors because they've just been surrounded by that kind of environment, that's just a weird contrast. But for her to weep and cry like that, I could only imagine the atrocities and what she's been through to actually feel so strongly about that. Because if you saw a, a non-Indigenous doctor, you're not going to suddenly cry and say, hey, I'm so glad I saw you and be treated by you. Yeah, that's very traumatic and a really powerful thing. And it's stuck in my heart forever because I'll never forget that moment. And I think I come back to the first part is that I am eternally grateful for the privilege that I've been given and the opportunity I've been given when you do come up against that kind of aspect. It's really powerful. So you treat a lot of ear disease, particularly ear disease that's prevalent amongst Indigenous kids. You go out to northern Australia, to the NT and to northern Western Australia out near the Kimberley to treat kids out there. Why is ear disease... Well, first of all, what kind of ear disease are you treating, particularly in those areas and here as well in Indigenous kids? And why is this such an important issue that does need to be addressed and treated medically by doctors? If I come back to our first point when we talked about how important the ear is and how lovely it is, the ear is the gateway to your life. If you can't hear, you're not going to get your education. If you don't get your education, you're not going to be able to be successful in life. And so hearing and hearing is very, very important. In saying that then... Otitis media is a very, very common disease. So we talked about that mechanism of the eardrum wobbling. Where the eardrum wobbles, fills up with fluid. And that fluid is just normal mucus that you build up, picks up all the rubbish, pushes down the back of your throat all the time. 
the majority of kids in Australia, 85% of kids in Australia, will experience otitis media in some time in their early life. What is that? Is that an infection? No, just fluid in the ear. Just fluid in the ear, Otitis media is fluid building up, cold or flu, fluid build up. Now, that can get infected, that can perforate, they can get a cold or flu, they can get a fever, any kind of things happen. But the important part is that more than 85% of kids will get it between the ages of zero and three, every kid in Australia. Yet the complications of otitis media, so prolonged hearing loss, speech and language delay, perforations, chronic suppurative otitis media, which is where it's just pus pouring out of the ear, are all very highly prevalent in Aboriginal communities. So one of the stats which are banded around quite commonly is that for a discharging ear or chronic suppurative otitis media, they say it's at catastrophic proportions when it's 4% of the population. There are communities I've been to where it's 85, 90% of the population have it. You know, one community I've been to in central Australia where every kid had cotton wool in their ear just to make sure they're collecting all the pus. There was one community I went to, again, where it just kind of tattered my head, the experience, where everyone all gathered around looking at this one ear, which was a normal eardrum. No one had seen a normal eardrum before, and that was a teacher's kid. Those kind of instances realise how bad disease is, and so in this amazing country, and I go back to the exit procedure, where we're doing some amazing world-first cutting-edge technology to simple thing like otitis media, where we have this dichotomy of Aboriginal kids experiencing disease proportions 10 times that of our non-Indigenous populations. And even in our urban populations, because people think of this as a remote disease, we're seeing disease rates being four or five times that of our non-Aboriginal populations. So you're talking about entire almost entire communities of children who have been, what education they're getting, that's been like sitting there with their hands clasped over their ears, effectively. They're they're hearing nothing but muffled warbling of the world. Mm. And it's it's hard then because if I start whispering, you can see that difference. So your listeners start tuning in going, what's wrong with this radio? Let's turn it up. When actual fact, that's how a lot of these kids are listening to all the time. And what's devastating about that is that as a, as a clinician who looks after these kids early on in life, that we can change their life and actually get them fixed so they can hear, so they can get the education, so they can live a life, that is the most profound impact we can have. And so the work we need to be working really hard on is how do we actually firstly detect that early on? Secondly, how do we actually get them into the treatment pathway, which is what the rest of Australia get? So... This isn't rocket science, is it? Like, you're clearing up these basic ear infections amongst these kids and in doing so, once they're able to hear again, then they can hear what people are saying around them, their speech advances more quickly, they can pay more close attention in, in school and all the good life choices that come from that. What are some of the cascading bad things that can happen if these ear infections, these ear diseases, aren't treated? Yeah, so... If I come back to that medical aspect, we're thinking in the very medical aspect when we're talking about ear disease treatment. The other part of that then which replays the mass media portrayal of us is that these kids can't talk properly, they're uneducated, they're not learning, they're harder to learn, or in actual fact it's a hearing's issue, behavioural issues, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you have this sliding doors moment where I could get two kids, one non-Indigenous kid one Indigenous kid and they both had the same ear disease at 18 months of age, I can almost guarantee, I can tell you what their outcome's going to be in 15, 20 years' time without having known anything else about them. And that's obviously a disparity that we see in them. 
and where that trajectory heads in that pathway is that if it's not treated, there's chronic infections, there's discharge, there's a lack of education, there's unemployment, there's social disengagement, there's problems with the law, and then there's incarceration. And if I can then go to the extreme of that, where we've had a recent death in custody where the patient died from a brain abscess from ear disease. A brain abscess from, from ear, ear disease. disease. How, had, so how this, had this affected him behaviourally then? Well, this should not even happen full stop. And when you look at medically the, the, the patient records, you go back to him when he was an 18-month-old kid, ear disease, ear disease, ear disease, behavioural issues, not listening, uneducated, kicked out of school, no employment, social breakdown, incarceration, in and out of jails, e-disease, e-disease. And then where it really broke my heart then is that rather than actually treating the root cause of this in this patient, then they start thinking, well, it's a substance abuse, must be coming off something. It's the schizophrenia that might be causing some of these issues. It's the mental health issue. So the treatment paradigm is far different to saying, well, hang on, is there an organic problem here? And so we're breaks my heart in seeing these is that there are two aspects of that. Number one, no one in Australia, in fact, no one in the world should die from a brain abscess from ear disease. The second thing then is that is not something that's acutely happened in this patient. That's happened from early on. So we as a community, as a health system, as a justice system, as a schooling system have failed this person and many others like it purely by the structure we've got at, which comes back to access, bias, treatment. And all along they've been treating, the society's been treating the, the catastrophic social symptoms of the underlying ear disease that's there in the first Absolutely. place. Absolutely. And I, I come back to that same point of, you know, if I can meet these kids when they're younger, can we actually change those? Now, even if you hate Aboriginal health, then as a taxpayer you should be saying, you know what, I'd much rather put a couple of bucks at the beginning of life to give someone a really good life than to spend... $300,000 keep them in jail for a year. So when you do treat a kid who has a, a nasty ear infection and you, you you actually send me some videos of, I think that's you there, yeah. I can know your tweezers there, and, and it's kind of disgustingly fascinating but kind of wild, like zeroing right inside the ear canal of, of a, a kid, you lancing an infected eardrum mm. and collecting all the pus that comes out of that and then sealing it up. It must be like, I don't know, turning the lights on. The kid can hear properly afterwards for the first time. Do you see that happening in oh, the kids you treat? It is beautiful. And they, Do they know, hate it at first? Because suddenly it must, the world must suddenly seem really noisy. Well, they don't like it because yeah. there's too much noise. Yeah. And then they can hear some things which are great and they hear things bad. You know, they heard birds. And one of the funny stories I have told in the past is one of the kids came back telling me how farts make noises. And I just thought <laughs> farts smell. <laughs> and he demonstrated it for me. <laughs> But, you know, and, that, and the humour in that is this is a kid who could not even hear simple bodily noises, which is a fun part of it. But, you know, and his speech was not that good and his speech just exponentially changed over the next couple of months and his parents were eternally grateful in that difference is made. And, again, I come back to sliding doors moments, such a simple thing to help this get on their pathway. What are the achievements that give you the most satisfaction? My family, again, I come back to. My wife is so, so supportive in the crazy, hectic life I live. My children are a joy. Like Obviously, as a, a father, you love your kids, but to see the, the power of identity, to see the strength in their character, 
is a really powerful thing because, you know, I go back to when I was in primary school and, again, uh, probably not a great moment in my life where I can recall scrubbing my skin, trying to rub the brown off and crying and, again, my mum being that person we talked about, um, reassuring me how important it is to be strong in your identity and there's nothing wrong with it and it's the people around you. To her, you know, not even being allowed to talk about her Aboriginality because they're worried about being taken away. To my kids sitting there, you know, proud as punch with their curry shirts on, um, talking about war in my country. And when I do talks um, for conferences, that I often use them for my acknowledgement of countries and things because they're just so super proud. And but you and, bring your kids up onto the uh, no, the I do lots of videos uh, of them, and um, and so then I'll, I'll cut it together so they can do the acknowledgement of country. And and again, going back on country, we've been doing videos all around um, my war in my country. And obviously when I'm talking in national and international meetings, it's really nice to show some of our country and to see the kids' pride in that, whereas, you know, at that age there's no way I'd even go close to talking about stuff like that where they're just so, so proud and it just makes my heart sing and I think my nan and my mum watching above would be really proud in what they've achieved in our kids and probably the hardest job I have is not so much in raising them is make him realise how privileged they are and what things they have in front of them not to waste. That's probably the hardest game for me. Well, the privilege has been all mine over this last hour. It's been wonderful speaking with you, Professor Kong, and congratulations on everything you've achieved so far. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure chatting. Professor Kelvin Kong is an ear, nose and throat specialist, surgeon and research scientist as well. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Fazadraki. And if you like stories about people getting into trouble, taking risks, falling in love, making mistakes, getting out of trouble, then you should come listen to Days Like These. We've got stories of crime and redemption, near-death experiences, and a kid who just wants to swim really fast. Sat my parents down in a very official type meeting at the age of eight. <laughs> I told my parents wearing this blue ribbon, I've decided I'm going to be an Olympic swimmer. That's what I'm going to do with my life. Because it's obvious, you know, pointing to my blue ribbon, I'm good at swimming. That's Days Like These. And you can listen right here or on the ABC Listen app.